As you may have heard, every year in Free Will Baptist, August is the last Sunday of August is designated for Free Will Baptist to come together and support the World Missions offering. I tell you this tonight because, as you can see, we're spending our, our monthly prayer service uh, on the prayer emphasis of praying for the nations. This prayer focus of praying for the nations is never really far from my heart. Um, but it's a good way to prepare our hearts for the World Missions offering. As we look at this, there's just several things that we, we want to remind ourselves of. None of that we talk about tonight is going to be new. Stuff we've all heard, stuff we know. But it's good to be reminded of familiar things uh, at various times. First, we want to, what we want to know is about God's heart for the nations. That's what we're going to start by talking about. Uh, the fact that God has a heart for all the nations and God has always had a heart for all the nations. Matthew 28, Jesus' great commandment or great commission. He says, and Jesus came and spoke to them. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to follow all I commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now the Greek word translated as nations is pantata ethne. And it means more than like the United States or Bulgaria or India. Uh, in fact, what it means is actually better than this. The people of Jesus' day really didn't think of nations in the way that, that we do. They thought in terms of what we today would call an ethnic group or a people group. Every country has multiple ethnic groups. No matter what it looks like, no nation on earth is really mono-ethnic. There are just a, a multitude of ethnics within every nation. In the United States... Uh, we think about the Native Americans. While we often use this term to refer to all Native Americans, we also know that Cherokees are not Apaches, and Apaches are not Creeks, Creeks are not Sioux, and Sioux are not Chickasha, or Chickasaw, and Chickasaw are not Seminoles. That, that's the basic idea uh, of people groups. So within the United States, we have 522 unique and distinct people groups just within our nation. Bulgaria has 30 unique and distinct people groups. India uh, has one of the most, 2,373 unique and distinct people groups make up the nation of India. Pakistan has 835 unique and distinct people groups. And even Japan, which Japan would seem like it would be very mono-ethnic, has 38 unique and distinct people groups living within the nation of Japan. In total, in the world, from what we the currently they know now, there are 17,438 unique and distinct people groups in the world. And God's word is clear. Jesus intends that his church would make disciples of people from all 17,438 unique and distinct people groups. Jesus intends to be worshipped. By all 17,438 unique and distinct people groups. It's in fact a promise that it will happen. In the Revelation it says they sang a new song. Saying, worthy are you to break the, take the scrolls to break its seals for you were slaughtered. And you purchased people for God with your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And every tribe and language and people and nation is just another way of saying... All 17,438 unique and distinct known people groups in the world. Jesus died to purchase people from every single unique and distinct people group on the world. He intends for them to be around his throne on that last day, praising him and worshiping him. Now, the idea of God saving people from every 
ethnic group, every unique and distinct ethnic or people group is not a New Testament idea. Right? This was always part of what God was going to do in the world. When God called Abraham in Genesis 12, so the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So when, when God told Abraham about all of the families of the earth, he was essentially saying all of the, the Pontata ethne, all of the unique and distinct people groups that are on the face of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Well, that seems like a big reach. How on earth? Could all 17,438 ethnic groups be blessed through Abraham? Well, of course, the answer to that is Jesus. To Jesus who, who died to purchase, who was slaughtered to purchase people to God from all the unique and distinct ethnic groups possible. Jesus' death is what makes Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. And Revelation 5, where every language, tribe, nation, and tongue is gathered to worship Him, possible. The point of God choosing Abraham and making him a great nation was to show that he was the all-powerful and all-sovereign God and to fulfill the promise he gave in Genesis 3.15 of a Redeemer. A Redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent and free people from being enslaved to what was broken on the day that Adam and Eve sinned. What God was doing in Genesis 12 by calling Abraham and promising to make a great nation through him was planning the earthly lineage of Jesus. Now remember, the ultimate purpose of everything God did in the Old Testament was to keep his promise of sending a Redeemer who would come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is important because even in the Old Testament, Yahweh was not and is not a, a puny tribal God who only ruled over or cared about one small group of people. Right? Psalm 24 and 1 tells us the world and all it contains belong to Yahweh. The, the world and all those who live in it. All throughout the Old Testament, we see pictures of God wanting to redeem people from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue, every unique and distinct ethnic group on the world. Now, I want to show you this from a, a couple of places today. But for starters, I want us to look at a place that may seem odd. A place where we would think this is not about the nations, but just specifically about Israel. Turn to Exodus chapter 6. is where we're starting at. Exodus 6 and, and verse 7 is where we're going to begin. That's page 47 in your pew Bibles, I believe. So God has called Abraham, or called Moses. He has sent him to go and tell the people that Yahweh is coming to redeem them. And in Exodus 6, in verse 7, God says, I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God. Right? So this is God choosing Israel. He is going to take them for himself and they will be his people and he will be their God. The purpose of this is that ye may know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So what God was about to do 
was because he had chosen them. They were his people and he wanted them to know he was their God and they were his people. But now jump to Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3. It says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not hearken unto you, that I may bring my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I stretch forth mine hand upon Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So God is going to do these things that he's going to do to show the Israelites he is their God. But he's also going to do it to show the Egyptians there is only one God. And it is Yahweh. It's not Ra. It's not Heket. It's not anyone else. Yahweh is the one and the true God. Now we see this idea that God was proving something to the Egyptians over and over in the account of God bringing the plagues. Look at chapter 7 and verse 17. Thus says the Lord, In this thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will smite the rod that is in thine hand upon the waters which are in the river, and they shall be turned to blood. So God is going to turn the rivers to blood so that Pharaoh and the Egyptians would know that there is only one God, and it is Yahweh. If you look at verse Chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Glory over me, when shall I entreat for thee and for thy servants and for thy people to destroy the frogs from thee and the houses that they may remain in the river only? And Pharaoh said, Tomorrow. Right, so the frogs are there. Pharaoh's asked for reprieve. God has said he will do it according to Moses' prayer. Moses said, You pick the time and I'll do it. Pharaoh says, Tomorrow. And here's what he says. Be it according to thy word, that thou mayest know that there is none like unto the Lord our God. Right? God is going to make the frogs die at a particular time, so they would know there is no God like Yahweh. Now look at chapter 9 and verse 14. I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 22. God says, and I will sever in that day the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, so there are no swarms of flies shall be there. To the end, that thou mayest, that thou mayest know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. So God was going to send flies on the land, but there would be a distinction between his people and not his people. So the Egyptians would know that God is the Lord, that Yahweh is the Lord who reigns in the midst of the earth. Now look at chapter 9 and verse 14. It says, For I will at this time set all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people, that thou mayest know there is none like me on the earth. Again, so they would know there is no God like Yahweh. Now look at Exodus 9 and verse 29. Moses said unto him, And as soon as I am gone out of the city, I will spread abroad my hands to the Lord, and the Lord shall, and the thunder shall cease, neither shall there be any more hell, that thou mayest know the earth is the Lord's. So God was going to stop the hail according to Moses' prayer so the Egyptians would know that Yahweh was the Lord. But over and over again, God has done these things according to His power so they would know He was the Lord. But as we read through the chapters, we begin to notice something is happening among the Egyptians. Look at chapter 9, verse 18. 
Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause it to rain very grievous hell, such as hath not been in Egypt since the foundation thereof even until now. Send therefore now and gather thy cattle and all that thou hast in the field. For upon every man and beast which shall be found in the field, it shall not be brought home. The hell shall come down upon them and they shall die. So there's a warning. The hell's going to come. It'll be really bad. Anybody out in the field is going to die. And notice verse 20. He that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the houses. And he that regardeth not the word of the Lord left his servants and his cattle in the field. Suddenly, the Egyptians are starting to fear Yahweh. They're starting to recognize that Yahweh is the Lord of all the earth and, and not Ra and not Pharaoh and not any of the Egyptian gods. Now again, look at chapter 10 and look at verse 2. That thou mayest tell in the ears of thy son and thy son's son what things I have wrought in Egypt and my signs which I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, God is going to send the locust so that for years down the road they would tell their children and their grandchildren there was one God and it was Yahweh and not any of the Egyptians' gods. Now the next plague that God brings upon them that we, that we would look at would be the, the death of the firstborn. And remember what had to be done. In order to, to keep the, the death from entering your house. Right? You had to, to get a lamb. You had to kill it in a certain way. You had to make sure it was without blemish. You had to put its blood on the, the doorposts. And you had to, to eat it. You had to do all of these things. But if, if the Lord said if he saw the blood, he would pass over them. Now, what do you suppose would have happened? Had an Egyptian who, who had already feared the word of the Lord took a lamb, made sure it was without spot or blemish, killed it, drained its blood, put the blood on the doorposts of their house. Do you suppose that Yahweh would have went ahead and bypassed the blood and killed them just because they weren't just because they were Egyptians and not Israelites? Well, I don't think so. He didn't do that with the hell. When the hell was rained down, those that brought their animals and their servants in were spared. So why would he start now if they did what he said that would cover and protect it? Why would he now just go ahead and kill them anyway? Admittedly, that there is no biblical evidence I know of defensively that absolutely proves that Yahweh spared them. However, something I find interesting that I think lends credibility toward the fact Yahweh did is in Exodus 12. Verse 37 and 38. This is the children of Israel leaving Egypt. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men besides children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them in flocks and herds and very much cattle. Now the, the, the idea of a, a mixed multitude certainly seems to indicate that all the people who left with Israel were not Israelites. That's what a mixed multitude means. It means that there were other peoples who were in Egypt who joined with Israel. And over time, these people became part of God's covenant people. They, they blended in, worshipped Yahweh, and became them. Now, again, it doesn't prove that these were people who put blood on the doorposts and walked out with Yah and walked out with the people of Yahweh. But it seems unlikely to my perspective 
that people who had just lost someone out of their house would that night pick up and walk out. Right? Because it says that there was not a home in Egypt where there was not a death. So it seems unlikely that they would leave because they left that night that they would leave without burying their children. It seems what makes the most sense to me is some of the Egyptians put blood on the doorpost. The Lord passed over. Their children were spared. And they said... Yahweh is the only God and we're joining with his people to be a part of the people of God. I believe this because, again, as we have seen, it has always been God's plan to save people from every language, tribe, nation and tongue, from every 17,438 people group in the world. We know this was always God's plan because God does love the nations. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. But the world might be saved through him. And again the world would include every language, tribe, nation and tongue. It would include people from all 17,438 ethnic groups. God always loved all the ethnic groups. God always loved all the people groups. And God always intended to save All the people groups. But again, this is not merely a New Testament concept. This is always the way Yahweh worked. Turn with me to the book of Jonah, uh, page 701. Jonah 1. Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for the wickedness has come before me. So Nineveh was a terribly wicked city. They horribly persecuted the children of Israel. They just were a miserably wicked, uh, violent, powerful nation. So Jonah, as a prophet of God, was supposed to go to them and cry out against their sin. But notice what Jonah did in verse 3. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa. Right. And a way to picture this. Is Jonah's in Gaiman. And God tells him to go to Kansas. And he flees to Texas. Right. He he goes the opposite direction of where God's telling him. He's fleeing from the Lord. He paid the fare of the ship. Went down with with him. Unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And we're familiar with the story. But when I was a kid. I was taught. Specifically, I was explicitly taught that the reason Jonah fled was because he was afraid of the Ninevites. Jonah was afraid that if he went to Nineveh and cried out against it, as God said, that the Ninevites would take him and kill him. And the lesson I was taught from that was we have to be courageous to do the things that God would have us to do. But when you study the book of Jonah... Jonah wasn't afraid of the Ninevites, was he? That's not the reason he fled. Jonah was afraid, but it was of something else. Look at Jonah chapter 4 and verse 1. So, by this time, Jonah has preached the message. He has cried out against it, as the Lord said. The people have repented. God has seen their works. He has 
turned, or they have turned from their evil deeds, and God has changed his mind. God is not going to bring the judgment against them. He is going to spare them and be merciful to them. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. What displeased him? What was he angry about? That God had decided not to bring judgment on the Ninevites. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew thou art a gracious God, a merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness, and thou repentest thee of evil. Therefore now take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What Jonah was afraid of, the reason he fled, he wasn't afraid the Ninevites would kill him. He was afraid God would forgive the Ninevites. That was his great fear. He did not want, he knew how gracious and how merciful and how slow to anger and how great in kindness God was. How quick he was to, to call off his anger and call off his judgment. And he was afraid in his heart that the Ninevites would hear the message. They would believe the message. They would repent of their sins. God would forgive them. And Jonah hated that God had done that. So much so that Jonah said he would rather die than live in a world where God gives grace and mercy to Ninevites. Look at, look at chapter 4 and verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow that he might see what would become of the city. Now, Jonah's angry. But he still, he goes out and he sits so he can watch the city. And what he's watching for is to see maybe God changed his mind about changing his mind. Maybe I can sit here and I can watch God bring judgment on the Ninevites. God is going to do it and I'm going to be a spectator for it. This is going to be good. That's what he's looking for. He's hoping God pours out his wrath upon them. The Lord God prepared a gourd, made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad for the gourd. That God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd and it withered. Came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a, a strong east wind and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah. And he fainted and wished himself to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. Now, of course, you sit to the story. Jonah's watching. God makes a tree rise up to, to give him some shade. Jonah rejoices in that. God makes a, an, a, a bug, chew it up, it dies. Jonah's now angry because he's hot. God calls him on it. Is it right for you to be angry? God's already asked him this in verse 4. Jonah says, yes. Yes, my anger is justified. It's so justified, I would rather die than give it up. Then the Lord said to him, Thou hast had pity on the gourd for which thou hast not labored, neither madest it to grow, which came up at night and perished at night. Should not I spare Nineveh, a great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? God's basic question is, isn't it hypocritical for you to care about a plant you didn't plant and, and you had nothing to do with, but not care, not expect me to care about people? That I created 
People who, who not knowing right from their hand means they don't know right from wrong. They're just spiritually blind, dead in their sins. And God, shouldn't God care about those kind of people? And of course, the answer is indeed God should care because God does care. God loves the nations and God plans to save people from all 17,438 ethnic people groups in the world. Not only does God love the nations, but God intends to be glorified among the nations. Uh, Malachi 1.11 says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name shall be great among the nations. And in every place, frankincense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of armies. Now, something I realized about this passage a few years ago as I was studying it, was the idea of from the, the rising of the sun to its setting doesn't refer to a duration, but a distance. I had always assumed that what it was saying was basically all day long, right? Everywhere, every, the sun is, rise, is shining somewhere. So while the sun is shining, people are praising the Lord, that God's name is to be praised around or 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and to be sure, there's an element of that. But larger meaning of that is by distance. Everywhere the sun shines, the people that it's shining on are meant to be praising the Lord. That, that's what he's saying. His name shall be great among all the nations. Not just a few, but all the nations. As the sun, just like the sun shines on all the nations, God's glory is to be seen among all the nations. And God is to be glorified and worshipped among all the nations. God intends to be worshipped and to be glorified by people from every language, tribe, nation, and tongue on the planet. And we don't have time tonight to really dig into it, but take some time and look at Psalm 96. Psalm 96 is, is basically an Old Testament call to evangelize the nations. It is a call to go to the heathen and declare to them the glory of God. Go to the nations and tell them the greatness, the goodness, the power, the majesty of Yahweh so that they will begin to worship God. Now, then that's the point, that they would begin to worship God. The, the glory of God among all the nations is not just that there are Christians, like we would go and send missionaries to all the nations, and God is glorified in that. He is. But the idea in Malachi and in Psalm 96 and in so many others is not just that there are people from here who go there and we worship Yahweh there. But that the people from here go there, turn them into disciples of Jesus, and the people there then begin to worship Yahweh. God intends not only to be glorified by people who go to the nations and sing and worship in the nations, but by the people of the nations themselves. God intends for every language, tribe, nation, and tongue to sing Him songs of praise in their native tongue, written in their style of worship. That's his desire. That is his intention is to be glorified among all the nations. So what we're going to do tonight right here is just take a minute and we're going to pray. And our prayer, we want to focus on praying for God to give us his heart for the nations. Right. Not, and, and, and when we talk about the nations in our community, that's a significant thing to think about. We certainly want to have God's heart for the nations out there. But how many of the 17,438 ethnic groups live here? I mean, the, the nations have literally come to Gaiman. We want, and God, God loves them and intends to save them and be glorified among them as well. So we want to have God's heart for the nations 
over there, but we want to have God's heart for the nations who have come here as well. Because just as God longs to be worshipped among the nations out there, He longs to be worshipped among all the nations who are here. And so we want to love the nations as God loves the nations. We want to long for God to be worshipped among the nations as God longs to be worshipped and glorified among the nations. So let's take time and let's pray for God to do that work in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, Father, that you love the nations. We're thankful that you love the nations because, Father, we are part of the nations. Clearly, we are not Jews from Jerusalem or Judea. We are not part of that one particular group of people. We are other. Lord, we are part of the 17,438 ethnic groups in the world. And we're thankful that the gospel reached to us, that you cared about us and you intended to save us. Father, we are thankful that you intended to be glorified and worshipped by us. So we're thankful the gospel came to our country. We are thankful the gospel came to our state. We are thankful the gospel came to our town. And we're thankful the gospel came to us as individuals. Father, let us realize that we are part of the nations and then give us the heart that others may experience what we have experienced. That others would know the love of the great and awesome God of the Bible as we have known it. That others would know the grace and the mercy of the great and awesome God of the Bible as we have known it. Father, give us a heart for the peoples. And Lord, it's easy to love the peoples who are far off that we can't see. We just have kind of an idea of what they're like. But Lord, in our community, the peoples live here. The nations have come here. Father, we not only want to love the nations around the world, but we want to love the nations around our community. So give us your heart for them. Give us your burden for them. Give us your desire to see them saved and become fully devoted disciples of Jesus who worship and glorify you throughout their lives. Let our hearts ache that there are places in the world where people do not know you. Let our hearts ache that there are places in the world where you are not worshipped. Let our hearts ache that there are languages out there that, that do not speak your praise. Father, let it burden us as it burdens you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Next, we want to talk about praying for our Free Will Baptist International missionaries. Now, the link at the top, uh, if you go to that link, it gives you a, a list of all Free Will Baptist missionaries. It's organized by what field they serve in, so what country they serve in. Uh, so you go into Brazil and it still shows Dr. Eagleton and his wife. And you could click on them and it would open up and tell you about who they are, why they went to Brazil. And then you just go down through there and there's pictures of the, the missionaries. Uh, you click on their picture. It opens up. It tells you their bio. There's a link there if you wanted to give to support them. Now, if you... If you click on them, it gives you a synopsis sort of about the country. What it tells you is why Japan, why France. And you can see why they chose to go there. Now, among all of the 
Free Will Baptist International Missionaries, there are basically eight, eight groups, eight families, eight people um, who are from Oklahoma. If you, on the way out, there's a handout on the table. If you want a handout that lists these names, you can, it's out there. So there is Jace Dixon from France. There is David and Mimi Reeves in France. David and Carol, Dennis and Carol Teague in France. And Joel and Liddy Teague also in France. Then Rusty and Brenda Carney in Japan. Emily Petty in Japan. Now, Emily is technically not from Oklahoma, but our church has pledged to support her monthly. So she is, while not an Oklahoma missionary, she is Northridge Free Will Baptist Church's missionary. We send her at least $100 every month for support. There's Tristan and Sierra White in Japan. And then Steve and Lori Torreson, who are at the Center for Intercultural Studies training missionaries. Now, the, the reason the list is important is because you can get the list, you can go to the website, and then you can begin to pray specifically for our international missionaries. Now, I, I have, this had slipped my mind uh, as we've gone through the missionaries on Sunday mornings, but these are the five things I try to pray for our missionaries regularly. They would be faithful, right? Faithful to Jesus, faithful to the gospel, faithful to one another. Right? Missionaries are just like us. And so the same issues we have, the same issues they have. Uh, and so there could be definitely any sort of problem there. We want them to be faithful to one another as well. Pray they would be fruitful. Fruitful through their abiding relationship with Jesus in their own personal life. And then fruitful in making disciples of all nations. That's the reason they've gone. Pray they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the fruit of the Spirit and filled with the fruits of righteousness listed in God's Word. And then pray they would be fully funded. Um, as I've said several times in a row, every mission agency in the world is underfunded. Many missionaries struggle to be fully funded. And we want them to be fully funded so they can do the work Jesus wants them to do. And then they can live life. I mean, they're, that, that's where they live. So they, they need to make sure they have enough to provide for themselves, care for their families, do the things that need to be done. Another way uh, to pray for specific issues or needs that our Free Will Baptist missionaries have. There's a lot of ways that we can do this. One is to connect through social media. One of the benefits of being from a smaller denomination, Free Will Baptist, is that uh, pretty much every Free Will Baptist missionary is knowable by us if we choose to know them. Social media uh, pretty much demands that they get on social media so they can be contacted by or they can give out support and information to the people back home. Every missionary I know has a Facebook page and they have a group. And the group is typically private. And if you're one of their supporters, they will invite you into the group and they will share specific issues that you can pray for about them just on a kind of moment, on a daily basis, they may share something. And so you can do that with every single Free Will Baptist missionary we have. You can get on their mailing list. On top of this, nearly every missionary sends out a letter, either via email or through snail mail, at least once a month. And trust me when I say they want you to get this letter. They want you to know what's going on. So if you connect with them and you say, hey, how do I get your newsletter? They will hook you up and tell you exactly how to do it. And then on the IM website, there is a, a prayer bulletin that goes out. And again, the hot, the uh, the, the handout up there has the address for that, but it's a hotline. And what it does is, it, it on a weekly basis, typically on Tuesday, they send out an update. And by it, it goes by, by country of where they're serving, and it tells you specific ways to pray for them. 
I mean, it tells you what's going on and, and what you can pray. Now, if you don't get to it on Tuesday, it stays up all well, it stays up forever. You can access all of the last ones from this last several months. But at least it stays up all week long. Uh, and so you can go there, find that, and pray for that. This is a again, it's an easy way to support our missionaries there. If you've ever talked to a missionary, you've ever been here and we've had one come, one of the first things they do, typically before they even ask for money, is and they're always going to ask for money because it's expensive to go overseas. So they're going to ask you to pray for them. And that's not just a, 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 a churchy thing, right? That's just not one of those things you're supposed to say. Those who have been to the field have seen the difficulties, seen the hardships, seen how hard it is to reach people, to learn another language, learn another culture, reach out to them, call on them to repent of their sins, believe in Jesus, go against everything they've ever been taught in their life. They, they know they can't do it alone. And so praying for them is truly, legitimately something they desire. Prayer, if we believe prayer is powerful, this is a great way to pray for the gospel, to spread to the nations, is to pray for our international missionaries. Uh, and so be sure to take time and do that. And again, pray pray these things. They'd be faithful, fruitful, filled, and fully funded. Now the last thing I want us to talk about before we close is praying for what's called the unreached peoples of the world. Jesus promised the gospel would be preached. It would be preached to all 14,000, 17,438 ethnic groups of the world. The gospel of the kingdom would be preached in the whole world as testimony to all the nations. Shall be preached the whole world to all the nations. It's a promise. Shall be as a, as a guarantee. It would happen. Jesus has promised the gospel would make it to the ends of the earth. And it would make it to all nations, all peoples, all languages, all tribes, all ethnic groups. And it's easy for us in America. See, we look at Gaiman and we see we can stand out. I mean, very few of us can stand out in our church or in our, our yard and not see a church somewhere. Uh, there are just multiple churches all around us. And it's easy to say, well, clearly this has happened. The reality is what we have in America with such an abundance of churches is not the way it is in really the vast majority of the world. Check this out. Now, you probably can't read what that says. The numbers are too small. But here's what you need to know. The red line is what's called unreached. Of the people group, 17,438 people groups, 7,382 are completely unreached. That is 42% of the 8 billion people in the world, over 3 billion of the population, are completely unreached. The red line means they are unreached. Now, the red line is the one I want to focus on. We're focusing on with this. There are, there are two words used to describe uh, these people groups that we're talking about. They're unreached and unengaged. And I think I'm not sure I've mentioned this before, but, but unreached isn't the same as lost. Right? A lost person is lost no matter where they are, whether they're unreached or whether they're in Gaiman. But a person in Gaiman, while they're lost, is not unreached. Unreached means there are not enough Christians, disciples of Jesus, in the native language of that particular people group who could reach everyone in their people group without outside assistance. Right? So in Gaiman, if every disciple of Jesus took seriously the command to make disciples of all nations, we could easily ensure by the end of the year every person in Gaiman had a clear, concise, and accurate gospel presentation. Fourth, 
7,382 people groups, three bill, over almost 4 billion people, that is not the case. An unreached people group means there are not enough people of their particular ethnic group, their language, to reach them. Unengaged further means that there's no active church planting underway. So they are unreached. There's no Christians among them, not enough to reach them, but there's not even a plan for an outside agency or an outside group to go to them and take the gospel to them. And what this means is 42% of the world is going to mean that they are going to live, they're going to die, and they will likely never meet a Christian. They will live and die, and they will never hear the gospel. They will never hear about Jesus, the Savior. Now, if they're in Muslim nations, they'll hear about Jesus from the Quran, but that's not Jesus, the Savior. But they will never hear it. Right? So unreached doesn't mean they're in Gaiman and there's 13 churches and they just choose not to go. Even if they suddenly had an idea about Jesus, they couldn't find a church or a disciple of Jesus to take that message to them. That is the reality for 42, 43% of our world. And the places where that are unreached are hard places. It is places where they are Muslim-majority nations. It is India that's a Hindu-majority nation that is strongly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are dangerous places. The missionaries who, who go there are called frontline missionaries. And they, they take their lives into their hand. Most frontline missionaries are at some point arrested. They are typically accosted by the police. They are often have been beaten uh, they've had their houses burnt down. They've had their churches vandalized. They are truly uh, in a dangerous place. They are in legitimate danger while they're there. Danger of being harassed, arrested, beaten, or killed. And yet, Jesus said the gospel is meant to go to those places. In Luke 10, Jesus talked about us being sent out as lambs among wolves. Not just a, a polite saying, not just a snazzy saying. It's literally, go to those places even though they're wolves and they may tear you apart. We're, the gospel is meant to go to those places. And so how can we be a part of helping reach the unreached and the unengaged? Well, we can give, we can go, or we can pray. Our focus tonight is on prayer. I have a book by a man who's a frontier missionary named Dick Brogdon. And he has lived his entire life as a missionary to the unreached. He was born in Kenya, came to America for college and seminary, and then returned to frontier missions. He has given his life for the sake of the gospel in a Muslim Arab world. He's lived in Kenya, Sudan, Cairo, Saudi Arabia, and other places. In one of his books, he gives 12 ways to pray for the unreached people of the world, for the laborers who are there. One, he says, pray for laborers. The unreached and the unengaged, uh, there's just not hardly anybody that wants to go there because it's dangerous. It's not glamorous. It's difficult. Pray for conviction of sin. Right? They, they go there, they have to preach the gospel, and the people who hear the gospel must be convicted. Pray for the, God, the cross to be unveiled, that the Holy Spirit would open their eyes to see it. Pray for, for the missionaries' faith and, and against fear. I mean, they, they live in dangerous situations. They're often afraid. Pray for the Word of God to rise. You see often in Acts about the, the Word of God rising and spreading. Pray the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people. Pray Jesus would unite the body of Christ. Sometimes in those places there may be in a city um, where there are multiple missionaries. 
That's a large city, millions of people, but they're from different different denominations. Sure not going to do much good if we have denominationalism mindset where I'm a free will Baptist, so I, I can't work with you because you're a Pentecostal or a Nazarene. So pray the, the church would be united there. Pray for good soil. Pray for peace. And, and primarily it means peace in the hearts of the missionaries, that they would be able to be calm and stay the course. For bold proclamation, uh, they still have to preach the word. Pray, pray against a works-based salvation and legalism. Every culture tends to lead towards that. And then pray for joy and persecution. Clearly, frontier missionaries are a unique kind of individual if they want to pray for joy and persecution. But we want to spend time and we want to pray for them. Uh, there are many ways to pray for the unreached. If you get a, There's a website called the Joshua Project. And they give an unreached of the day. If you ever watch the slideshow on Sunday mornings, typically there's a the unreached of that particular Sunday is on there. And you can read about where they are, what percentage of them are Christian, ways to pray for them. Uh, that's probably the best way to pray for them. And then there's groups, organizations you can find that go there and, and talk about that. But the, the unreached of the day, the Joshua Project, either through an app or on the website, is probably one of the easiest way to do it. One of my favorite authors of, of Days Gone By... It's a man named Andrew Murray. And here's what he said about the importance of prayer in reaching the nations. The evangelization of the world depends first upon a revival of prayer. Deeper than our need for workers, deeper far than the need for money, deep down at the bottom of our spiritual lives is the need for the forgotten secret of prevailing and worldwide prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you tonight. We thank you for your grace and goodness. Thank you, Lord, for, for those who are willing to go to the the nations to give their lives to sacrifice so much to go there lord we pray lord that you would give labors lord raise up other people to go to those places raise up people from our church raise up people from our community send them out let them take the gospel to the nations we pray for those who are there lord that you would give them strength and courage and give them peace your holy spirit would protect them let them boldly proclaim the gospel let the gospel take root in people's hearts and let them be able to start disciple making movements among the people there that would spread how to see just hundreds and thousands of people saved among the millions, the billions of unreached peoples in the world. Father, we know your heart is for them. We know Jesus died for them. Let us do what we can to be a part of seeing the gospel taken to them. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.